0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. And as usual, I'm joined by John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. Hey, uh, so it's that time of year, it is time to talk about E3. Uh, And so uh, because of the pandemic, we had another strange E3 where it was kind of all online, uh, kind of greatly dispersed, uh, not as many publishers there. Uh, you know, distributing content, distributing videos, but at the same time, we had an E3 style event uh, last week, uh, all virtual. And so, uh, as is uh, our duty uh, here at History Respawn, uh, we like to have an episode uh, where uh, John and I, and you know, maybe guest historians, no guest historians this year, uh, talk <laughs> about some of the history related games uh, that were mentioned uh, at the big show. And um, then also uh, kind of getting our general thoughts about uh, some of the other goings on uh, in the world of video games as we approach uh, this kind of very strange release calendar uh, affected by the pandemic. But I would say I'm very glad to just have a, a release calendar at all, John.
1: <laughs> yes, games are still coming out. That's, that's encouraging. Yeah. The industry has survived.
0: Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, so we'll start at the top of the show with the history related games. Uh, And then we'll uh, travel into uh, some of the other non-history games that we're kind of interested in, um, looking in particular at the big shows for uh, Xbox uh, and Bethesda, and then also Nintendo uh, in their Direct. And then we'll wrap things up today by talking about uh, some of the games we've been playing recently, and uh, spoiler alert, uh, it's really just about Mass Effect legendary edition. So uh, if you want to hear more about historians talking about Mass Effect 1 and 2, then uh, stick to the end of the show. Uh, But uh, whatever you're here for, thank you for joining us. And uh, I'll get started uh, by talking about uh, the usual purveyor of uh, history game content, and that's Ubisoft. Uh, Now we've already gone into detail past couple of episodes uh, talking a bit about the ongoing controversies related to Ubisoft Uh, on their corporate culture and, um, you know, problems with sexual harassment, uh, so we don't need to relitigate those here. Uh, But uh, Ubisoft uh, didn't bother announcing those things or mentioning those things during their press conference, as you probably (laughs) expect. Uh, But they did uh, announce uh, several uh, new games and then also updates to current games. So the big one uh, of interest to History Respawn is that they've announced a Discovery Tour mode, Uh, for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which will be free to all players of the base game, base version of Valhalla, uh, sometime this fall. Uh, So, you know, I would imagine that's probably coming in uh, October uh, or November. Uh, But that's just a guess. I don't have any inside information. Um, So, uh, as you probably know, as a listener of History Respawn Podcast, uh, you know, Discovery Tour Mode uh, started as an educational edition to uh, Assassin's Creed Origins and then they did a updated version of Discovery Tour uh, for Odyssey uh, a couple years ago and so now this will be their third stab at this project. Uh, So John uh, what do you make of this announcement of a Discovery Tour mode and is there anything that you're looking forward to with regards to that?
1: Well I think it's really encouraging. I think what I like now is that it's just becoming an established thing Mm -hmm. which is great. I mean Hopefully, I'm not being too optimistic there. But you know, I I don't feel it was that long ago. Well, really, ever since you know, uh, when the first one came out, each year we each game, you and I and many others would be sitting around kind of thinking, well, will they do a discovery mode? I hope they do. You mm-hmm. know, and and there's you know maybe somebody somewhere said they would. So, um, and then do, will they? And so Valhalla is, is this the third discovery mode? Again? It is, yeah, or, yeah. And I, you know, and they're they're doing things like. Taking on the viewpoint of certain, you know, of, of NPCs. And I was reading something about, um, you know, uh, there seems to be a bit, little bit more structure coming, you know, further structuring coming into it in terms of structuring out, you know, doling out this kind of information stuff. So that all starts to get really, really interesting. Um, I wonder down the line if a tension will arise between. For example, you and me wanting a very, very sandboxy thing to throw students into or to jump into ourselves versus something that becomes a bit more dictated to mm-hmm. the player in terms mm-hmm. of this is the history that we, that, we, that, we, um, that we adapted. This is how we see it. Um, but I think that's a problem for the future. I think for now, it's really encouraging. And I'm kind of, I don't know if this is a 3.0 or a 1.2 or if we haven't reached 1.0 yet, but um, they're dedicating resources and time and energy to this. Um, and I'm I'm just really happy to see that, and, and I, I hope it continues.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, this is a bonus for us. I don't know what kind of business it does for Ubisoft, especially when they <laughs> release it for free. Maybe it's just a goodwill gesture. Um, mm. You know, I'm sure it also kind of helps their marketing of future Assassin's Creed games, you know, showing, hey, look at all this research we put into it. Now we can show you. Uh, the type of work that we did on it. Now, one of the things that interested me about the trailer for this uh, Discovery Tour mode, there was just a little snippet of it uh, in their general uh, look at Valhalla and new content coming next year, um, was the fact that you could take on the role of an NPC uh, in this uh, Discovery Tour mode and you could participate in some of the activities, historical activities that you're seeing uh, being um, done by NPCs throughout the game. Uh, So I think there was one, one part of that trailer where it looked like you took on the role of an NPC who was uh, chopping down a tree or building a boat or something like that. So I think that kind of use of interactive features could be really useful. Um, You know, I know discovery tour mode is kind of focused on removing most of the difficult interaction, you know, combat and traversal. Uh, But I think there are little mini games that they could put in to kind of, I don't know, get you into the mode of a historical reenactor, for instance.
1: Well, there are games out there where you basically chop things and gather things and build things. (laughs) I myself play many of those games. So, yeah, no, I, I, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's intriguing. Yeah. I don't, I don't see them make creating a situation where you're, um, you're the Englishman minding your own business, um, you know, crafting a box or a table and then a bunch of Vikings show up and burn the town down. But um, (laughs) it'd be kind of cool if they did that. Yeah. I, I doubt they,
0: I doubt they will. No, I doubt it. Um, the other bit of news regarding Valhalla is there is a new DLC that actually is coming out later this summer, uh, and it is uh, set during the Siege of Paris. Uh, so it's coming out, I believe, in August, by the end of August, um, although their last DLC was delayed quite a bit, so we'll see if they stick to that timetable. Uh, but the Siege of Paris uh, is offering up um, you know, new armor, new weapons, uh, new play styles, new fighting styles. Uh, It's offering up, um, you know, new clothes, uh, new outfits, uh, new tattoos, new hairstyles, all the kind of things, all the trappings of modern games that you would expect. But then interestingly uh, for Assassin's Creed players is that this DLC is going to bring back the so-called black box missions uh, from previous uh, AC titles. And this includes black box missions from uh, AC Unity in particular. So these were missions uh, in which you would be given a target Uh, But then it would be up to you in order to determine how to execute that target. Uh, So it's a bit more of like a Hitman-style version of Assassin's Creed. You know, whereas typically in Assassin's Creed, uh, you know, at least the older incarnations, you had a very set path in order to reach a target and then take out a target. Uh, But these black box missions, it's more open-ended. So I think that's that's a fun idea. And, uh, you know, I think anything that gets back to the older versions of Assassin's Creed that are focused on uh assassinating a single target that is attractive to me as an older uh assassin's creed player i don't know how attractive that is to younger uh valhalla players (laughs) but i mean for me as an oldie that sounds really great i'm fascinated by
1: valhalla the extension i mean of course it's a game. it's starting to feel like a platform. I guess mm-hmm. previous games were the same, but um I was thrilled that they kind of went to Ireland for the DLC and now they're going to Paris and it's just I like this kind of idea that I mean it helps anyway that the Vikings were spread out so much anyway across Europe, but I like this approach that like well we're just going to send our protagonist to such a place and why wouldn't we? You know, mm-hmm. and and we're kind of, you know, so um yeah, it's more more good stuff. It's funny cuz the general vibe not just from yourself, Bob. But the general vibe towards Valhalla seems to be, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's like a lot of people like it, but um I, I don't think it's made the splash that uh, Odyssey kind of made, or mm-hmm. it, it hasn't. It hasn't got the love that Odyssey got.
0: I don't think it's gotten or, the love. You're getting but, a lot of game. Yeah, but I think a lot of people bought it and are playing it, and I think a lot of that has to do with the new consoles. Um mm. You know, I think that that's kind of a you know, I know it was a a cross-generational game, so it was on Xbox One and PlayStation 4 as well, but I think, you know, people who managed to get a a PS5 and an Xbox Series X, um, you know, were desperate to have something to play, and that kind of scratched that itch, and I mean, for me, again, I'll just sound like a, uh, you know, tired record here, but I just, I miss the days of focus on a single assassination target. I miss the days of a limited open world. I miss the days of a, you know, kind of a 16-hour game. Um, But I don't think we'll ever get back there. Uh, We'll see, but... And parkour. And parkour. Yeah, Yeah. it's just climbing. And there's not any skill to it either. I mean, back (laughs) in the day, you had to use different buttons, and you had to, like, strategically think about how you're going to climb this tower in Venice. And now it's just, you know... It's just one button. It's just, it's pathetic, really. Um, (laughs) All right. So then the last bit of news uh, from Ubisoft uh, was regarding a couple of games, uh, one of which we know quite a bit about so far Far Cry 6, uh, which is kind of set in a um, pseudo, uh, at least according to Ubisoft, non political version of Cuba uh, (laughs) during a revolutionary age. And then they've got an Avatar game. Uh, This is Avatar the movie. Uh, Jim Cameron and all that, uh, that came out many, many years ago, uh, and uh, I have got to say, John, I, I don't know what your feelings are about this, but I wasn't particularly interested uh, in either one of these games, uh, particularly Far Cry 6, because I I played Far Cry 5, I don't know if you played Far Cry 5, and I, I just kind of felt like the series is is ready for a totally new direction, and I just don't think we're going to get that uh, from Far Cry Six, it looks like another iteration on that mm-hmm. same very tired formula at this point.
1: Yeah, I think the um, the Avatar game, I couldn't. I mean, it could end up being wonderful, and maybe it is. But for me, that kind of ties into as we'll go through the list. This will become more and more entire talking. Um, like the indies are, are winning in a sense now. That for me, especially with the time constraints that are required for some of the quote unquote AAA games. I can't. I can't play as many of them as I used to. Obviously, people in different life situations can. So it's specific to me. But then indie games, I'm finding I can play more of them and have more of those experiences. So a game like Avatar, for example, it's like, well, I mean, when do I play that? You know, I have to really be motivated to try and carve out room for that that game. And then Far Cry Six, I, you know, Far Cry Five seems to have been a bit of a struggle they did the whole spin-off slash expand alone thing that they had previously done with far cry three. Um, far cry three was that kind of super eighties, you know, um, what was that called? Um,
0: Oh, uh, blood Dragon.
1: Thank you. Blood yeah. dragon. That kind of out there, you know, fun Sean, idea.
0: Was it, no, it's not Sean Bean. It's, uh, Oh gosh, what's his name? Michael yeah. Bean. Michael B. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 You know, and a lot of a lot of that was great. And then so they brought out this expandable, which I never played for five, which is these two young female characters, kind of, I guess, surviving the apocalypse or something. And far, I think the Far Cry series, part of its appeal was always it was throwing the kitchen sink at you and just giving you more ways to play than you knew what to do with. I think people are tired. Um, I will say the theme to Six is still interesting to me. Mm-hmm. The, we swear to God, it's not Cuba. Obviously, it's Cuba theme. And um, and I think everybody is kind of like, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who would give up on Far Cry Six, except that Giancarlo Esposito's in it. Yeah. And everyone loves him. Yeah. <laughs> Justifiably so. Um, yeah, Giancarlo so, uh, Esposito,
0: uh, one of the most famous uh, character, bad guy actors uh, in at least North America, famous mm-hmm. for breaking bad, uh, the Mandalorian. Now, uh, he did a stint on a whole bunch of different shows, including community. Um, yeah, just really, really famous actor now. Yeah. So, um, but yeah,
1: I, I, um, we'll see, I'm sure history respond will cover far cry six when the time comes and a lot can change in between now and when these games come out. But, yeah. um, you know, I think it, it's also interesting that you have this, um, what, what a lot of game critics now just call the Ubisoft game or mm-hmm. the Ubisoft formula. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to think that was a bit too cute when people first started saying that. Um, but they were right. It's, it's, it's become a bit of an issue. They're having difficulty differentiating their products, yeah. I think.
0: I think there is grounds for talking about Far Cry 6. I mean, we, well, we both went to UT Austin, and a you know, big mm-hmm. push at UT Austin, at least from the graduate students there, is to reconsider the Cold War era through uh, Latin America. Right. Because it's kind of right. You've kind of done the histories of Europe, America, obviously, during the Cold War. Asia got a lot of attention uh, in the early 1990s. uh, But now I think this current generation of scholars has really done a lot of work to build out our knowledge of Latin America during the Cold War. So there's tons of guests we could have on for that kind of episode. But it's just like, what kind of game are we going to get? As the basis for talking about those kind of issues, I don't know, so we could just use it to talk about Cuban history, I suppose um I don't think anybody would bat an eyelash. yeah, no, I don't think so, but um, we'll
1: see part of it is we're kind of we don't know what's in the game, right we yeah. still have no real yeah. sense, yeah, so yeah, i I'm looking forward to hearing more about that
0: all right, and then uh moving on for Ubisoft, we've just kinda of got a grab bag list here of other history titles and these are pulled from many different shows so uh, please don't quiz me if this came from xbox or uh, nintendo or whoever else bandai bandai namco i have no idea Um, (laughs) uh, so the first one is uh, we got an announcement of the release date for age of empires 4 which comes out on october 28th on this included a new gameplay trailer which i'm reading here Uh, was debuted at Xbox's uh, E3 conference. Uh, And so this new trailer um, just kind of is more mood setting. Uh, You get a little bit of gameplay features. It looks like Age of Empires. It looks like the game you remember uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s. And what I thought was interesting about this trailer wasn't so much the game itself. I mean, it, it, it looks great. The kind of destruction features in this real-time strategy game look really good. They blow up a a medieval wall with a trebuchet, and it looks great. Destruction. Um, But what I thought was interesting was the way they presented it. They really leaned in this trailer on the historical angle. Uh, So you've got this voiceover of somebody who is Joan of Arc, uh, we later learned at the end of the episode or the end of the trailer, (laughs) Uh, And you've got these various historical statues and archaeological sites throughout the world that are shown. uh, And then superimposed on top of those are elements of Age of Empires IV. So it makes it look like these historical statues have come to life and you're playing as them, or these archaeological sites have come to life and you are building a city uh, in the midst of them. So it really leans into the idea of history and you are playing history and you are making history your story uh, through this game. So, I just thought that some of the language there used in this trailer uh, was really interesting, and it ties into a lot of you know the ways in which we've seen historical games uh, you know promoted uh, in the last mm. decade or so. So that's it's kind of you kind of know what you're going to get with Age of Empires, but uh, I just thought that the way they presented it in the trailer was was interesting.
1: Yeah, I. I'm going to I'm going to say some things that are going to sound like criticisms that are really not meant to be. Um Age of Empires 4 at least based on this trailer strikes me as being in a very very difficult situation in the sense that it kind of reminds me of you know, I think, Bob, you might have seen this. There's, like, this British TV show where they use the total, like, the total war engine from, like, 2004 to re- to simulate historical battles. And they get these students to come in, and they they lead a team to try and defeat each other. I forget, like, uh, battle commanders. Yeah, that sounds of, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, people could YouTube it. It's it's kind of hilarious. Um, and kind of great, also. And Age of Empires reminds me of that. It, remi- it reminds me of when I briefly, uh, in another life, was playing tabletop um War games, um, the flames of war guys in the back room, the old guys playing, who, that's me now, right? I'm the old guy now, but mm-hmm. the old guys playing the World War II stuff. It just, you know, quote unquote history buff game is kind of how it yeah. feels to me. Armchair, and,
0: um, armchair historian. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily mean that as a bad thing because I think we're kind of at a point where the market can totally sustain that. And if you're the person, if you're a part of the team who is uh, making Age of Empires IV, um the audience out there for that game really doesn't want you to like reinvent the wheel. Like that's not what they want you to do. Um, but we end. I, I got a strong, you know, remaster vibe from that trailer, even yeah. though it's a real sequel. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting, you know, Jeremiah McCall, you know, who we talked to a lot, uh, he's an educator at the, at the game space, um, He's on Twitter. He's been quite active on Twitter recently. If people at home use Twitter, he's gaming at gaming the past. And every now and most mornings the last week or two, he's kind of been throwing questions out. And this morning he kind of was just, Hey, people who do game stuff, what's on your mind? And I replied to him and said, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I ever thought there was a line really, but where is the line between quote unquote history games and non-history games? Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, like when is a game, a history game? So like I'm I, I played a bit of Wildermyth yesterday and I was like maybe it is history respond maybe it won't I don't know I can't you know am I getting too ridiculous now um, but Age of Empires four is it does not have that problem <laughs> it's just you know it's it's almost like uh, and again I don't mean this in a negative way it's almost like a stereotypical example of what a quote unquote history game mm-hmm. is yeah um, it's the most like history game. That we're discussing in this podcast <laughs> in this kind of very history buff you know yeah well and, um, and what
0: i would compare it to is the type of book that you'd get for your dad for father's yes, day you know exactly like you know if he's really into history it'd be kind of like exactly the, the book you'd get at barnes noble or local bookstore as like ah, oh, this is the tome the new history tome that's very popular the biography of. Benjamin Franklin, you know, or something like that, or, you know, uh, uh, a new uh, narrative history book about Waterloo. Um, And so, yeah, I think it kind of fits into that. But, you know, I, I love those games at the same time. And so, and I think that they're really interesting, because they kind of show that mass market appeal uh, Mm -hmm. for history in a way that I think something a little bit more esoteric, you know, like some of these indie games that we're going to talk about, don't immediately kind of Uh, you know, rise to that level. Um, So, yeah. Right, and like, you know, and you and I
1: get, like, knee-deep into this stuff and I'm like, ooh, you know, I I figured out how I can do, you know, um, how Mass Effect can be on the History Respawn video Mm -hmm. next week or something, you know? But, like, to, like, you know, Garden Variety, what is a history game? this is it. And like, if Age of Empires 4 decided, oh, guess what? We've, we've incorporated a Crusader Kings 2-style personality system. You and me and every other Age of Empires fan would be like, why did, Why would you do that? So, like, <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm criticizing them. For, well, I'm not criticizing them, but like it would be unfair, I think, to criticize them for doing something which their, their fan base just wouldn't want them yeah. to do. Yeah,
0: you're totally right. You know? And I think about that a lot. We're in the midst of Civs 101 right now. And You know, heaping a lot of criticism, I think, uh, on the Civilization series. But at the same time, it's like, oh, well, if you actually change these things, I don't know if I'd really like the game anymore. So, you know, (laughs) it's, it's really it's an impossible problem. And I'm sure developers have to put up with that. All the damn time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, moving on from Age of Empires, uh, we also had uh, other news from the Xbox show. I, I told you I didn't know which shows these, you know, trailers came out with, and I lied. Uh, I've got all the web pages <laughs> pulled up here. A uh, news about a a new Plague Tale uh, game. So, if you remember, uh, several years back we had a, a game called a Plague Tale: Innocence. Uh, now we're getting a sequel called a Plague Tale. Requiem, uh, and if you don't know, this is a game that uh, follows a duo uh, in, uh, I think, medieval France, uh, and they are mm. dealing with swarms of rats. And uh, I, you know, I never got a chance to play uh, playtale Innocence, and now there's a sequel coming out, and I feel very awkward because I feel like this is a game that we should have covered in History Respawn, and we just didn't, and uh, I blame myself honestly, but. I know that a lot of people out in um, you know, the historical game study space have talked about a playtale innocence, You know, many people interested in a depiction of the medieval world uh, in games, and so this is a very big title that came out uh, several years ago along that lines, it's a game that's on Game Pass right now, uh, so really there's no excuse, so I'm just uh, bringing up a playtale Requiem mainly as a reminder to myself to play a playtale innocence. <laughs> um I, I I'm in the exact same boat.
1: I'm ashamed to say this largely motivates me to finally go and play the first one. yeah, um I think I think those games I'll say those games now there's a sequel coming, I think are intriguing to me, and they seem very lived in mm-hmm. in that historical space or are at least what the design, what the developers imagine that space to be. I think that's kind of interesting because going back to the Age of Empires 4 discussion, a lot of games have the you know have the here's a here's a cutscene or here here's something that is kind of making the subtext textual just for mm-hmm. a few minutes, just so you know that this is 1772 or something. And those games seem feel very lived in from what I've seen and mm-hmm. watched streams and stuff. So yeah, that's, they look that's, beautiful. That's interesting. Um, I just, yeah. Oh,
0: I need to actually play them. Um, then another game here. Uh, this one I actually have no idea. Uh, which conferences came out of but uh, we have news of a new Sam Barlow game Uh, and if you don't know Sam Barlow uh, is the uh, developer who created uh, Telling Lies and Her Story uh, a couple of uh, narratively focused uh, indie games that have gotten a lot of acclaim on the past five years or so Uh, and he's got a new game coming out uh, which uh, seems to have a historical slant to it we don't know much about other than the teaser trailer uh, we got during E3, uh, but it's called Immortality. And uh, this game is supposed to follow a Hollywood actress, uh, Marissa Marcel, uh, who released a series of, uh, well, actually uh, was in a series of films. Uh, it looks like the dates are in the maybe 50s and 60s. I'm not sure. Just based on the, uh, the posters of these films that are provided in the trailer. Uh, and these were unreleased films. And so there's some sort of uh, uh, disappearance, mystery surrounding this actress. And I'm sure you're going to be put to the task of trying to figure out what happened to her. Uh, and it's supposed to be a story that takes place across decades. Uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know a lot about it. You know, I've been looking up articles about this game um haven't gotten much information, but uh, some really great writers are attached to it. Uh, Alan Scott, who wrote uh, for the TV shows Queen's Gambit, uh, and then uh, Amelia Gray, uh, who wrote for Mr. Robot and Maniac, uh, and then Barry Gifford, uh, who wrote for uh, Wild at Heart and Lost Highway. Uh, I suppose that's the, the movies, Wild at Hard and Lost Highway, not TV shows. Uh, but still, uh, really great uh, screenwriters attached to this project. And so, um, you know, somebody who likes these games, like Sam Barlow's works, uh, you know, I'm really intrigued by this. And it does look like from the trailer that, I mean, just based on looking at these posters that are included here, uh, it does look like maybe 1960s, 1970s as the date for these. Um, but that's just purely going off of the look of the posters uh, including uh, included in the trailer here. So I'll, I'll play some of the trailer here for John in case he hasn't gotten to see it. But uh, uh, let's see. Take a look at these posters yeah. here. And it looks kind of, I don't know. It looks to me like this one in the center. That looks like mid-60s. Um, yeah. Whereas the one definitely. on the right could be 80s or 90s. I don't know. And maybe one well, on the left, it's, I don't know, maybe the one on the left could be 30s or 40s. And Wild at
1: Heart and Lost Highway. Lost Highway is a David Lynch film. Is is Wild at Heart
0: a David Lynch film? Is it? It might be. I,
1: I can't remember. But um, So I think there it could be intriguing. Maybe it's not true, but I mean, you have a couple of different writers from different backgrounds there. It'd be intriguing if they were given their own kind of sections of the game to
0: write. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, written and directed by David Lynch. Wild at Heart, yeah. 1990. Laura Dern, yeah. Nick Cage. So yeah. that, so that, that's kind of interesting, and something
1: that Barlow did with her story, and this is something that is increasingly happening in the, in the indie space as well. Is that um, you know, they're messing around with the visuals of a game or what you expect from a game structurally, and you know, developers are doing this forever, but um, how do I put it? They're doing so they're producing content or they're producing games that they look different without feeling jarring or without feeling crappy <laughs> or cheap or, 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 or technically deficient in some way. And, and, it's, and it's not just, I think it's not just a technical catch up. I think that um, these different creators now are, are using their visual language in, in really interesting ways. Um, like for example, I have a colleague here at Center College, Stacey Peoples. She teaches film at Center College film theory and things like that. And I'm increasingly able to kind of, she's never in game skeptical as some film people are, but I can increasingly show her trailers, for example, like immortality and she's getting her interest getting peaked because these game creators are now not, I was going to say dabbling, but that's wrong are engaging in a lot of this kind of lang- visual language and, and experimentation and stuff that the filmmakers have been engaging in. Mm-hmm. So, just, which is, which is, I think is just really, really interesting. So yeah, I, I you know, yeah, I can't wait to see what comes out of this
0: yeah yeah, so we'll see uh, I'm curious uh, it looks great so we'll see what happens uh, the next one I wanted to bring up uh, is uh, House of Ashes uh, which comes from uh, Supermassive Games uh, and if you recognize uh, Supermassive it's probably associated with the Dark Pictures uh, anthology these are the creators of uh, the famous uh, PlayStation 4 game Until Dawn uh, which is a uh, Kind of a interactive horror game uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, you should really play Until Dawn if you're interested in B-movie horror at all. Um, <laughs> and actually, Until Dawn features uh, Rami Malek, uh, who now has a Best Actor award uh, from the Academy Awards, so he has an Oscar. So that's very strange. Um, but uh, Until Dawn, uh, their development team is making a new Dark Pictures anthology game called House of Ashes, which is going to be set... Uh, In 2003, uh, in the Iraq War, and you are going to be following a special forces team uh, that is going to Iraq and hunting for weapons of mass destruction. And they uh, have found this underground, uh, what they believe to be an Iraqi facility underground, uh, that is housing weapons of mass destruction. But when they get down there, uh, they find a buried Sumerian temple that contains uh, unearthly creatures uh, bent on murder and destruction. So... Um, a lot going on there. Um, I think there was some historical angle to some of the other dark picture anthology games. I haven't actually played all of them, but uh, you know this one, um, I, you know, it's appealing to me. I, I really enjoyed Until Dawn, and I'm, I'm curious to see what they'll do uh, with this setting.
1: Yeah, it's it's very B, B movie ish yeah. um, in in a very endearing way. I continue to be intrigued by, um, you know, they talk about this time dilation. Like someone commented the other day that we are now as far from Raiders of the Lost Ark as Raiders of the Lost Ark is from the Maltese Falcon. Don't say that. That's which terrible. Is disturbing. But I'm thinking of this like, wow, really? The war in Iraq already? But that's like, depending on how you want to count it. Oh, I know. That's almost 20 years ago. Oh, I know. I mean, I remember the movie Heartbreak Ridge, which in fairness, Grenada was not quite as a as topical as Iraq. Um, but, you know, and, and, and Vietnam movies, I mean, the Vietnam movies coming out, you know, within three years of the fall of Saigon. Yeah. So, um, I'm intrigued and looking at the images here, we're looking at images when we talk listeners. Um, you can go to the steam page, somewhere else to see these different kind of still images. I'm kind of intrigued how they choose to mix. They're clearly going for a mixture of like modern weaponry and people with this kind of Sumerian temple evil mm-hmm. of some description. So mm-hmm. I, I hope they pull it
0: off. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very well established, well worn, um, you know, horror movie trope of well equipped modern soldiers getting caught up in an ancient temple mystery type of thing. I feel like I've seen this movie about a, a zillion times, and I'll probably watch a zillion more. Uh, before and then, I die. and then you'll and then you'll play this game. And, and i kind I'll of you know definitely play this game. I know. You know sure. you think you you think your technology
1: and civilization can save you from the ancient evil, but it cannot. That's uh, <laughs> that's, exactly that's, that's what right. is going on.
0: That's hundred <laughs> percent right. Um, another game uh, that was uh, briefly mentioned during the course of E3. I don't know if it was presented at the show, but uh, it was mentioned uh, around uh, E3. It was a game called Gloomwood, uh, which is a game in which Uh, you are in a survival sim, uh, which is very much styled like a late 90s uh, Resident Evil, um, uh, you know, kind of original uh, system shock uh, survival sim uh, set in a Victorian city that is consumed uh, by an ancient curse. Uh, And so we're, again, looking at some of the images here from Gloomwood on Steam page, and you can see it's very heavy in atmosphere. uh, But then also the aesthetic, uh, you know, the kind of look, of the game is very much uh, mid to late 90s. Uh, You know, you look at this game, it looks very much like Thief uh, in its aesthetics, like original Thief. uh, It's kind of blocky character Mm -hmm. design, um, blocky environments. Um, And then also, uh, if you watch uh, the kind of original trailer that they put forward for this game, uh, you know, the actual gameplay itself is very reminiscent of, uh, of Thief, of uh system shock you know those kind of very deliberate uh slowly paced survival sims uh, so uh, yeah kind of interested to see this and, you know this might be one where we wait for reviews uh, before we look at it but uh i don't know uh, it's it's interesting to me that uh you know this kind of uh there seems to be an honest, un- unending thirst for uh horror games set in a you know Victorian city um and so <laughs> And that goes for independent titles like this. It goes for AAA titles. It goes for everything in between. So uh, it's just interesting how that keeps, it keeps coming up. All right. And then the, uh, the next game that we've got here, this one's a little bit funny. Um, this one was, uh, this was announced during, oh, I can't remember. There was a, there was a separate conference during E3, uh, for kind of, uh, laid-back games, uh, relaxing games. I can't remember what it was called, and I'm really embarrassed. I can't remember. But uh, one of the games that was announced during that conference is a game called Lake. Uh, And in Lake, uh, you are playing as uh, a woman uh, who is a corporate computer whiz who is taking a break from her job on the big city to spend two weeks as a postal worker in her hometown of Providence Oaks, Oregon. Uh, And it's set in the 1980s. Um, so, <laughs> uh, this is one of these kind of, uh, like I said, uh, it looks like resource management game, uh, you know, kind of exploration game, driving sim game. Um, you know, it kind of looks like a game that's built around, uh, fetch quests that you might get in like a GTA game. Um, but I'm sure there's some narrative trappings, uh, that go along with that. And, uh, I don't know, it just looks like kind of a fun hang, um, and there's the, you know, I know we've got a lot of foreign listeners. There's a very romantic kind of view of the post office in American life. Uh, it's a it's a group that's very much under assault uh, right now. You know, a lot of attempts to defund the post office, get rid of the post office, make the post office into a private organization, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but there's a very romantic ideal uh, in American Life regarding the post office and the work of you know, post officials and all this. So, I don't know. Uh, I find this game uh, kind of appealing. Uh, this is definitely something I want to check out. I, I don't know if it'll be something for History Respawn, but uh, I just think it's interesting that we are getting so many uh, historical games and in ways that you may not expect, right? Not everything is a World War II sim. You know, not everything is... A, grand strategy game we can also get uh uh, small smaller more narrow titles uh like lake it was the um
1: um i think it was the wholesome game show or something like that. that's what it is yes um yeah it's (laughs) this reminds me um and if there's english listeners british listeners they might and irish listeners they might know what i'm talking about there used to be a television show which of course now is 20 years ago called last of the summer wine um which was kind of kind of a quasi period piece it was kind of set in the present day i guess or not that long ago and it was just these three old guys getting into various scrapes and silly adventures and it was fine you know and or or what all creatures great and small which was a, a book and then a oh, television yeah. show which has yeah. recently been rebooted which is just vets in the english countryside in the 1950s you know that that's it that's the entire show <laughs> and so it's kind of intriguing to me the video games might well, why not? I mean, you look at trucks, you know Euro and America truck
0: simulator Exactly that's a there's good an audience for just
1: kicking back you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. I think you're absolutely right with that. yeah, so I mean look at the uh, little pictures that they've included there um, you know uh, about the game about lake, you know it does look like it's got some of that 80s aesthetic to it. I don't know how much uh, you know sourcing they've done with in the 1980s in Oregon, but uh, you know we'll see it's it seems like a very particular place. Uh, to have the game set, so I'm imagining somebody on the development team uh, has got some experience uh, living in Oregon during the 1980s. Uh, oh, go maybe ahead, it's the Alan Wake game. Yeah, maybe it's, it's one huge front. It's a whole roof. Well, wasn't the basis <laughs> for Alan Wake? Wasn't he? Didn't he get delivered something in the mail that caused him to go and visit that particular area of Oregon? Oh my I, I don't remember. That? I don't remember. Yeah.
1: Uh, I remember he was a writer and he was an architect. I can't remember why he got up
0: there. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Um, Okay, and then the last kind of out-and-out history game uh, that I saw uh, during the show uh, was a new game coming out from uh, Avalanche Studios. Uh, They are the developers of the Just Cause series. Uh, They've uh, announced a new game called Contraband, uh, which just got a a teaser trailer uh, at the Xbox show during E3. Uh, But this game is a new uh, co-op game, uh, open world co-op game, uh, set in, it looks like 1970s Latin American country. Uh, So really very sketchy details about this. There's just kind of a, what you might call a mood uh, trailer that's attached to it. You know, just kind of like still life uh, poses of various characters and settings, um, but not really anything uh, heavily detailed. Uh, But it is a co-op. Uh, you know, kind of action game where it looks like you're planning heists uh, in, you know, kind of 1970s Latin America. So I think uh, about the setting and I think about, you know, the kind of gameplay style. We had a lot of uh, co-op games announced uh, here at E3. We'll talk about the Left for Dead knockoffs here uh, in a bit. But <laughs> um, Contraband seems like an interesting premise. You know, I think that the idea, the premise of setting it in Latin America in the 1970s is a pretty interesting one uh, you know, kind of harkens back to something like, I don't know, romancing the stone, uh, or some of those other, uh, terrible action rom-coms that came out in the early eighties, mid eighties. Uh, and then also I think having it set around planning heists makes a lot of sense, you know, because you've seen the kind of takeoff of, um, uh, GTA Online, uh, and their heist uh, in that. And so I think this is a gameplay mode that players would be interested in. And then I think as a historical setting, it is kind of a it's an interesting one. It's not something that you would see very often. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited uh, to see more of this one. But, you know, given the fact that we just get like kind of a mood trailer here, I don't really know if this is an actual game, if it'll actually come out, all of those kind of provisos uh, in mind.
1: I, I'm intrigued because I also kind of I kind of read the visual language of the trailers being Latin America, but then the the word Bayan is Tagalog for country or nation, mm-hmm. which would imply that it's a a Filipino adjacent, oh or okay. you know type type setting, and I mean maybe that isn't the case. I I kind of was looking. Oh no, you're right. I, yeah,
0: no, I see it here. of A uh, fictional Southeast Asian world. Yeah, you're right. Oh okay, yeah, there right. it is, right well, so, there. So,
1: so th- that's that's exciting. Um, because you know, especially the course of course the Philippines, which as some people listening will know, was an American colony until the end of World War II, mm-hmm. from um, from the Spanish American War until, in um, 1900 until um, until 1945, and then of course the Cold War and lots of other things. Um, the Philippines has this interesting relationship to the United States and certainly in the 70s before Marcos goes really bad, um, you know, Marcos is a very effective president at first you know, the Philippines has its own swinging 70s kind of vibe, you know, um, and so I'd be intrigued I'd be looking forward to that um, to to see what they choose to do with it and I could see people getting frustrated depending on how they handle it too like, is this an Asian location that becomes a um, what's the word uh, um, just a location for people to play in you know for mm-hmm. westerners to have fun but yeah. I, I think games have become more sophisticated than that and I think just cause the just cause games in their own way despite being very over the top were quite nuanced in the way that they talked about you know non North American ideas for example mm-hmm. um, so yeah I, I'm excited I wish we do more we just get this really exciting looking trailer and that's it yeah
0: With uh, Steely Dan playing over Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, I had a thought while watching this trailer. I was like, most of the people watching this trailer probably never even heard of Steely Dan. They have no idea. (laughs) They have no idea. I have deep thoughts about Steely Dan and their years as a studio (laughs) band and why that makes them a lesser band. Um, yeah, so interesting stuff though. But, uh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And it's right here in this, uh, uh, your game article it says fictional Southeast Asia world. Well, you know, even though it's not Latin America, I mean, that's another setting that uh, you would maybe mm-hmm. not expect for uh, a historical setting. So I think that's good. You know, any kind of diversity with these kind of history games, I think is uh, attractive. It's appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another game, which I don't know if it's necessarily a history game, but it's one that caught our eye uh, called uh, Terra Nil. Uh, and in this game, uh, which is being published by Devolver, Uh, you are uh, playing a reverse city builder uh, in which you are striving to bring nature back uh, to an industrialized zone. Uh, And this is a game that's going to come out on PC. I don't think it's announced for any other um, platforms yet. Um, But, you know, this is kind of an idea that I think would be appealing to, you know, people who play city builders, you know, kind of coming at it from uh, the other perspective. And, you know, it's, also an interesting idea when you consider the more recent trajectory of uh, first person games where you've gotten uh, first person shooter environments in which you are cleaning up, um, you know, after, uh, you know, a first person shootout, um, you know, and you've got uh, surgery simulator games where you're trying to heal people and save them rather than kill them. Um, and so I feel like that kind of concept it could be applied to strategy games in many ways. And so I kind of see this game in that same vein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it jumped out to me
1: because because of our focus on Civs 101 at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also intriguing to me, um, the sheer, um, all the different ways that um, game developers and game audiences, I guess, feelings about the environment and the changing environment and the human footprint on the planet are manifesting in games. Now, I mean, Terra Nil, so this idea that, um, you know, uh, nature is reclaiming a previously settled urban environment, um, you know, th- th- there's nothing super new about that, I guess, but it just kind of intrigues me that our, in 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 the games, it's new. The sentiment isn't new, um, but now it's something that games are exploring all the time. And I'm really interested. I mean, if you think back to a couple months ago, we did an episode on Cyberpunk 2077, and we, we spent a lot of time in history to respond in the last few years, discussing urban spaces, you know, and, and recreations of urban spaces. And I think games do urban decay a lot in the sense of, like, moral decay or, or crime or something like that as a kind of a way to move plots along. And this is this is a literal decay, and mm-hmm. I think um, it's intriguing. And, and Devolver is one of those publishers at this point where, like, I will at the very least try every single game they publish. Like, that's just where I am with yeah. Devolver at this point.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so, uh, so that does it for our historically themed games, and now we've got uh, some moments here to talk about uh, some of the other bigger games, just general games that were uh, uh, debuting at the C three, or uh, perhaps just you know we're learning more information about them. So I figured I'd start with uh, the show from Xbox, and I'll just run down the list here of uh, what was shown at Xbox before we talk about them. So, um, you know, the big thing with Xbox is you had two big announcements. Uh, The first one uh, was Starfield, uh, which is the new Bethesda open-world RPG. Uh, And in case you need a reminder, uh, Microsoft uh, and Xbox, they bought Bethesda uh, not too long ago. So that means that all of those RPGs that you've been playing, Fallout... Um, Elder Scrolls, and now I suppose Starfield, uh, are now owned by Microsoft, by Xbox. So, uh, Starfield, uh, this is a game that, uh, in the words of the developers, is going to be NASA meets Indiana Jones. Uh, I imagine they're taking a little bit of inspiration from No Man's Sky uh, in that statement, but it is a, uh, open world RPG that's set in, uh, the near future. And it looks like a hard sci-fi game. Uh, you look at this game, you look at the trailer, and it's kind of a lot of uh, uh, ships, uh, spaceships with uh, you know with meters and switches and hard sci-fi uh, stuff. And uh, this game is going to be exclusive to Xbox. Uh, and then also we had uh, news about Halo Infinite. Uh, we had an extended uh, gameplay trailer uh, for the multiplayer in particular. Uh, looks like the game is taking a lot of influence from Titanfall. Uh, with the kind of movement and the energy, uh, and then also a use of a grappling hook uh, in the multiplayer mode. Uh, and then they're also changing things up a little bit with the aesthetics of Halo Infinite. They've included a Spartan with a samurai helmet. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there might be some means for talking about Halo and, you know, the kind of uh, use of Japanese culture or something like that very to Respawn. Uh, then Battlefield uh, 2042. Uh, this is DICE's new Battlefield game this is coming on the heels of Battlefield 1 and Battlefield 5 which of course were uh, historically uh, based games or Battlefield V, I don't don't remember the World War 2 Battlefield Um, and so now we've got a future setting uh, and then uh, kind of uh, wild action uh, set pieces amid environmentally uh, compromised near future cities so if you watch the trailer it's got like a uh, battle raging in a, uh, a city that's been overcome by sandstorms. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting look, but they they're not going back to the past. Uh, then we had uh, news about game Pass. a couple of interesting titles coming out through game Pass, uh, Back for Blood. Uh, the Left for Dead, uh, basically sequel uh, to Left for Dead 2 uh, is coming to game Pass. Uh, we've also got uh, 12 minutes, which is kind of a narratively focused uh, roguelike game. Uh, That's coming to Game Pass. I'm really interested in that one. Uh, News about Diablo II Resurrected, uh, which is going to come out on September 23rd. Uh, uh, That's a game that uh, Diablo II almost caused me to drop out of undergraduate school uh, my freshman year. Uh, And then uh, Redfall, uh, which is a vampire-focused Left 4 Dead-like. There's so many of these coming out. Uh, but those were the games that came out through Xbox's conference. Those were the ones that interested me, John. Any significant thoughts about Xbox's uh, promotion here?
1: Uh, I I forgot you, we were talking about if I had anything to add before we started recording, and I forgot I would add Stalker too as well. Mm, yeah, that I was that, that. I think that was the Xbox show. I think you're right. I think you're right enough. Um, yeah, I mean, I everything. I don't really believe Hello Infinite will ever come out. Um, to be perfectly honest, um, I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by we have all the Left for Dead's now, which is interesting to me. Um, um, I wonder are you know I don't know how much of it because, of course, these games are in development for years. Is COVID related or game bases, including older people related? But the co-op space is getting bigger and bigger and mm-hmm. bigger. Um, I'm more excited for Diablo II than I expected I would be. Um, it did not have the impact on me that it had on you. Um, probably good for my college career, my high school career, and what it was. Um, but I'm super excited about that. And um, yeah, Starfield. I don't know. I I think I I think I'm engaging in this like self defense mechanism, Starfield, mm. where I'm just choosing not to have any feelings about it mm-hmm. whatsoever. Because it's kind of exactly what I want. You know, it's, it's like an r it's an RPG um, in this kind of hard sci fi. You know, Yafet Koto is a working-class guy trying to make a living in space type vibe, but with a Mac. Um, I'm a little bit confused as some of the press coming out after the trailer came out, where you know the nasty meets Indiana Jones. This is going to be like Han Solo. It's like, okay, I'm not. I don't know how all that comes together. Yeah. Um. But uh. But it's exciting, and also, you know, um, I, I Alex Navarro on the Nextlander cast which is where he works now. I think he said that 27 of the 30 games they announced at this show, uh, are the Microsoft games they announced, are going to be on Game Pass Day One. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I guess Microsoft is making a big bet. That's the future of the industry.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, but Starfield. I mean, so you, sorry, are you? Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
1: I was going to ask. So I mean, so how about you though? I mean, is it is it really is Back for Blood? I know you were a big Left for Dead guy. Like, is Back for Blood really kind of tickling you, or
0: it? You know, you know it's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I have been looking forward to Black for, Back for Blood for a long time now. I think they announced it maybe four years ago, three years ago, something like that. So I've been looking forward to that. But now all of a sudden we've got Back for Blood, we've got Redfall, we've got uh, the oh, what what is it? The uh, Rainbow Six uh, game.
1: That's right. Uh, With like an alien
0: virus that turns people into zombies. That's kind of a Left 4 Dead uh, type of game or co-op action game. And so I look at that and I think, you know, I think a bit of it is probably that pandemic-related thing, you know, that you're talking Mm -hmm. about, like, you know, people want to get together, but they don't want to do it in person. But at the same time, I kind of look at it as a a generational shift. I think a lot of people, Mm -hmm. probably our age, John... Who played yeah. a lot of Left for Dead, uh, you know, ten to twelve years ago, are now in a position to control development, and they're saying, you know, what was great was Left yeah. for Dead. We should make one of right. those. Like, and I felt that way after Left for Dead Two came out. I was like, why didn't they make more of these? Right? Where are <laughs> the developers making these other games? Because this game is amazing, and that was the last significant time that I played a lot of co-op online. Um, right. you know, after that point, I really moved away from co-op shooters, really moved away from playing online at all, just because of the community and kind of the poisonous nature of online interactions, especially with, uh, people ages 12 to 16. And, um, yeah. And so, you know, left for dead, that kind of group was very different because you were playing together. Right. And so. Right. Um, It led to a very different culture around that game that I really appreciated. And I think I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know. I'm just guessing here. But I wouldn't be surprised if many people in development on those games came out of that same sort of experience and are like, we need to get back there. Like, those games were awesome. And we've got some ideas for them. So, yeah, I'm most excited about that. Um, You know, I got to say with Halo, I think they kind of lost me. Uh, with Halo Four, <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever go back, but I you know, hope it's good. You know, for the people who like Halo, Battlefield twenty forty two that looks great, but it's kind of a you know average co op shooter that I don't think I really. It's not my type of game uh, anymore. Yeah. Um, and then Starfield, yeah, I, th- I feel like you, I I'm reserving my feelings on that until it comes out and I've read reviews. It's, it's not gonna be the type of game I don't think I'm gonna buy in like day one. Um, but uh, yeah, that doesn't come out until late next year. I think November of next year is November eleventh, twenty twenty-two. Yeah, and so yeah, I, you know, we'll have plenty of time to develop feelings, totally accurate feelings about that before it comes out. <laughs>
1: I will say those are famous last words. they will put those on my tombstone, waiting for the review. You know, that's the kind of. I say that a lot, mine, I never, I never do it. I never, I never kind of deliver. Also, if people are listening, if you're a Halo fan, you're waiting for, and you're waiting for Halo Infinite. and You somehow haven't played Destiny? Just play Destiny. Mm. Destiny Two is Halo. Mm. Just play that. Mm. <laughs> it just is. You know,
0: um, tough but true. I think.
1: I mean, I yeah, I, I'm not trying to say anything. Against three, four, three industries and stuff. I mean, you know, I think that they do great stuff and everything. And, and I hope it's good. I, I really want it to be good, but it's hard, you know, when these games go on for long enough, you kind of get tired and, and the games I think are interesting because you can't, I mean, Stephen King fires out the first workable draft of his novel in three months, right? Yeah. Or see Stephen King. That's how he does it. But um, I think with any creative endeavor, I, I, I believe there's, there's a kind of a window after which, unless you can rejuvenate the idea in some way, it's 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 just so hard to keep it alive mm-hmm. and and then you have what what do they call it they call it tech debt i think in video game development um but you know you're struggling with stuff where like you you're you're kind of you're you're trying to anticipate what will be standard a few years down the line and if there's a jump or a move sideways you know like if you designed a game 5 years ago assuming that everybody would have a vr version of their triple a games in 2021 well, that what that wouldn't have been a good bet no. you know so, um, so yeah,
0: so we'll, we'll see. see. I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, when we were growing up, particularly like in the early two thousands, Halo was put up there right next to Mario and Grand Theft Auto oh, yeah. was kind of like a, a tentpole of the industry. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the last 10 years, that has just not been the case. Like it has fallen way off. And I know that there's a lot of big Xbox fans who, we'll argue against that but like it's just not it's not part of the zeitgeist in the way that it was um mm-hmm. and i don't know what changed i don't know if it was something with the loss of um you know those old developers who worked on those original games but uh you know you yeah, know it's just it's really interesting to me and i think this is kind of a make or break game um because those games are so expensive to make if this one bombs i just I don't know if we see Halo for a long time. And, you know, you look at Xbox and their business, and this is not a video game business podcast, obviously, but we've been following the industry for a long time. And I think what's interesting is that Xbox really fell off with their first-party development in the past five years. And part of the reason they've moved to Game Pass, part of the reason they bought all these developers to work on Game Pass games is because... Their tent bowl projects, Halo, Gears of War, those games are not nearly as popular uh, as they used to be. And that's not to say they're not popular at all, but it is to say that they kind of need these games to work uh, in certain respects. Even though they've got Game Pass, even though they've got all these other titles, mm-hmm. like Halo is still a big deal. And, you know, if that doesn't work, I kind of wonder, you know, does it hurt them a lot because Game Pass kind of fills in the holes or does it? Does it, you know, maybe doesn't matter because of Game Pass? I don't know. I don't. I don't well,
1: they, they 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 couldn't. They went through this period of just not getting games out the door. I mean, Fable is another example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I know a lot of people don't think of Fable that way, but you know, those first those games were very popular, um, and they they felt very kind of Microsofty in a way. <laughs> I mean, they were they were Xbox exclusives, but there was something uh, about that. Um, I look at it. I mean, I think of some of the really big tentpole. Um, Oh God! Property is such a disgusting word to use, but um, you know, like like Mario. You look back to Super Mario Three was such a big departure. Two, of course, well, two was kind of a they cheated a bit, but two is a departure. Three, they started adding things. World is its own thing, and they do all these different things. Final Fantasy, of course, kind of gets to re- redesign its narrative every single game. Um, and Gears, Gears, and uh, and Halo tried that. Like Halo had Halo ODST um it had uh halo reach you know it it did those things but then sadly for whatever reason i mean and there are people who love the main games up to the present you mm-hmm. know and yeah. and 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 more power to them but like i can tell you that i was the first three mainline halo games i really really liked halo like yeah. i was so excited when reach came out i was so excited for dst and then um I I couldn't point to a moment for you where the the Halo series lost me. I just
0: you know just did. Yeah. I don't I don't know why. Same same here. Um, and then we had Nintendo's show, uh, which the big news out of that was that we've got a a short snippet uh, looked like gameplay trailer of Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild sequel. They didn't give it a title yet, uh, but uh, they did show kind of significant gameplay elements. Uh, And it made the game look a lot like Skyward Sword, uh, which is the Zelda game that came out on the Wii U, uh, where you have kind of uh, floating cities, floating islands uh, in the air. Uh, You've got kind of skydiving going on uh, with Link traveling between these different islands, these different areas. Um, And so yeah, I I think that got a lot of attention. And then we also had an announcement of Metroid Dread. Uh, So we've been waiting, I think is a (laughs) <laughs> a video game public. We've been waiting for a very long time for a new Metroid game. Uh, and here we've got one and it is going to be a 2d switch game. Uh, and it looks like there are some first person elements, uh, but uh, Metroid dread uh, 2d focus, uh, and it, it was briefly mentioned as Metroid 5 uh, in the trailer, mm-hmm. uh, but they're kind of dismissing that as, you know, uh, we did this because there's a fan base that really cares about these things, but really it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those were the two kind of big announcements coming out of uh, Nintendo uh, for E3. Uh, they also had a weird kind of comment about
1: it being um, the end of the Metroid storyline. There'll be Metroid mm, yes, anymore after this yes, game. Yes, yes yeah, And it's yeah. just kind of, I'm like... Okay, guys. Um I'm excited about Metroid Dread. I'm very excited. You know, they had i I played one of the GBA Metroid games and that passed on a little bit into the DS level, but um a good 2D Metroid game is a very, very good video game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so and and I'm assuming from the trailer and from the title, of Dread, it seems that you'll be running away from a very powerful enemy for a lot of that game. Yeah. Um I don't always like those games because they make me anxious. <laughs> but um uh but I'm I'm quite hopeful. And then and then you know, Breath of the Wild 2, whatever ends up getting called. Um, just you know, removed your ability and weapons, guys. That's that's it. That's I'm they yeah. should also just remake all the Wii U because, like nobody had any and almost nobody bought nobody a Wii had Wii U. a Wii U. Yeah. So just like they're remaking a Sonic uh Wii U game, mm-hmm. Sonic Colors, I think, or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so that's what they should do is they should do this new
0: game, but also just do Skyward Sword for the Switch. People will buy it. I saw people I saw people I online buy balking at Sonic Colors and I'm like, you know, nobody had a Wii U. Like nobody. Like <laughs> yeah, you were among exactly. you know, the these are you know, game critics that I follow and it's like you know, nobody but you had a Wii U. Like the first time I even saw a Wii U in public was at PAX in twenty fifteen. Like that was the first time wow. I ever seen one in public, and I played it. I played, uh, what was it, New Super Mario Brothers or something. I, I played Super Mario Brothers U or something like that. And I just played it, not because I was really interested in that game, but because, you know, it's just like, I just need to see what this is like because uh-huh. I've never seen one. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I just say, go ahead and just bring them all out. You know, why not? Let's do it. A yeah. um, couple of other things. Uh, first thing, I think this was actually at Nintendo's, or did Square have their own show? I think maybe Square had their own show. Uh, but we had news yeah. about a, uh, a release uh, from Square of uh, called Final Fantasy Retro. Uh, in this game, uh, it's going to come to PC, and it's going to collect Final Fantasies 1 through 6 in one package. And it looks like it'll be uh, one of these kind of up-res... Uh, pixel perfect versions of those original final fantasy games. And yeah, I think this is kind of a interesting, you know, we've kind of had ongoing discussions here on history, Respawn about games preservation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, uh, these final fantasy games, Hey, they have come out, uh, in different emulated forms. Uh, but most of the emulations are based on the, I think the phone versions, the iOS versions mm-hmm. of those games, and they're not great ports. And so to see them kind of putting more time into developing, you know, truly HD updated versions of these games, I think is worthwhile. Now, as far as people going back and playing these, I I don't know. I mean, it's it maybe for nostalgia alone, that's enough. But for somebody, a young person now playing these games, I, I couldn't imagine they would get much out of them. But maybe I'm wrong. What do you think, John? Um, I, I think there's still a space for those kind of
1: classic RPG games, especially if you have the time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so many games that have come out in the last five years. I mean, and they have put interesting spins on it, things like Octopath Traveler and stuff like that. That um, the desire is still there to play those kind of games. Um, I agree. It's kind of a it's 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 an important kind of moment in games preservation because, of course. You know, just throwing the phone versions up on Steam is just a kind of a classic example of good game companies just not caring um, and taking the attitude they'll buy whatever. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the market is people our age, Bob, who'll buy it and never, never turn on the program. Mm-hmm. Like that—that's entirely possible. They also, I don't know, maybe Square Nix is having a bit of um, you know the Final Fantasy remake seven seven remake, sorry, which I might talk about in a few minutes and. Um, you know, has been a big thing. And uh, they're also releasing Team Ninja are making a game like a, a third person action game set in the world of Final Fantasy. Yes. I. Yes. I am a 40 year old video game fan. I could not for the life of me tell you what the hell that even means. Like, huh? But, you know, so Square Enix is I, I don't know. Some, something is happening. Something is going on. <laughs> and,
0: uh, and just a correction here, it's not called Final Fantasy Retro. That was just a note to myself. Uh, it's called uh, Final Fantasy Pixel Remaster Collection. Uh, so apologies for that. No, sorry, Square. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm looking over a news article here from IGN about it. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, I don't know who this is for um, is my kind of question. But, uh, you know, like you said, the Final Fantasy VII Remaster has been... Uh, a huge hit. But, you know, that's like a brand new game, honestly, uh, from what I've heard. And so this is kind of just a remaster of really, really, really old content. Like, this is old for me, and I'm old, right? And so, right. um like, this would be like somebody coming back and like, well, let's do a remaster of Duck Hunt. Um, right. You know, it's like, I don't know, I just, I really, I really wonder. Uh, but, you know, like you said, John, like, there's, there's been a market for these kind of games and Mm -hmm. particularly for uh, JRPG games. Those games have a very, very loyal fan base. So what do I know? And I'll say about, um, I'll just, I'll I'll bring it in really quickly. I I played Final
1: Fantasy VII Remake, but I I literally played tonight before we started recording. I played the first like 20 minutes and, um, you know, I had heard on podcasts and I'd read people and I'd watched people on videos talking about how the remake kind of, evokes the original game while it being its own thing um i yeah nobody's doing it justice and not for lack of trying it's it's astonishing it gets astonishing what they did it's kind of it's kind of amazing just to kind of capitalize on nostalgia in this way that feels extremely creatively worthwhile <laughs> and interesting did you um
0: let me ask you real quick yeah. did you play final fantasy 7 back in the day i did
1: i didn't finish it wow yeah It was a JRPG. I didn't. I think I finished eight for some reason. Mm. Don't ask me why. Mm. Um, I played. I played seven. I don't remember how far I got, but all I remember, all I really remember, are the portions early on of the city, which is what the remake remakes. So
0: we'll see. I don't know. I'm I'm curious about that one. But anyways, uh, then the last uh, new game uh, that I wanted to bring up. This one uh, I saw in some collection of E3, uh, Best of E3. Uh, list, uh, and this is a game called Loot River, uh, and it is a procedurally generated uh, dungeon crawler, and it's basically a mixture of Tetris and Diablo, uh, and so I just watched the gameplay trail of this. I'm watching it right now so John can uh, see it as well, and it have got hordes of enemies chasing after you. And then you've got to move platforms along like Tetris in order to get to new areas of the dungeon. Um, And this, this looks exactly like my type of game. Um, I love the look of this and I don't know, I don't know if it's just because I've been playing a lot of Tetris effect uh, recently, but uh, yeah, this, this looks great. I love the look of it. So um, yeah. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that game. I'm, really curious oh and it looks like your player character is kind of a uh medieval doctor it's got the whole uh face mask and all of that stuff so uh yeah i don't know This will be fun
1: yeah we 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 didn't mention the game with the best name all weekend which was wizard with the gun which is the best named game
0: (laughs) i i have not uh, i have not heard of that game
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> well you're a wizard with a gun. It's a top down. That's a top down shooter. Blue River looks gorgeous. So Bob and I are watching it here as we're chatting, and well worth looking up to have a look at it. You know, I I I was I mentioned Wildermyth earlier. I a little little bit of Wildermyth, which 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 came out of early access this week, um, and it makes you think of Book of Demons. And there's just so many games now by really astonishing creative people who are like, what if we take something that ostensibly seems like a rehash of one of the three oldest ideas of video games and we'll just throw a new mechanic into it mm-hmm. or we'll it's actually a different game or or whatever the case might be. And I I'm I'm just, I'm astonished by, by the creativity of these people. This is, this is just fantastic stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So Loot River looks great. You know, Book of Demons is worth a look if people are listening. Wildermyth is worth a look. All these games that are like, we'll take something that looks like a bog-standard recreation of an old idea, but it's there's a lot more going on there.
0: I love this wizard with a gun. I'm just watching the trailer now. It's like Final <laughs> Fantasy wizards shooting yes. old-style, like early modern handguns. So this is... This is wonderful. <laughs> Great name too. Oh man! Um, so that does it for E3. John, any last thoughts on E3 as a whole, or you know what we saw? Um,
1: what I would say very quickly is that for me personally, we always kind of being a bit older and I think family and everything else. But even even when I was younger, like I I was I was briefly tempted to go to an E3. I think one year I I, I seriously considered trying to go. Um, I'm, i just usually just watch videos or or even if i have the time video streams or like you know memories of four-hour podcasts of jeff Gerstmann and a bunch of guys from giant bomb getting drunk in a room with some game developers and so in a sense i guess i missed that part of the content but i was kind of living vicariously through others anyway you know um so i'm okay and of course as as many people listening already know the E3 idea was struggling anyway. Like, mm-hmm. they, you know, all these companies are trying to figure out how do we have our own event, but still benefit from all our events being cotton together. And what they have now seems to be working. Yeah. Um,
0: I so, kind of wonder yeah. if they, if they ever go back to an in-person event, I just don't, I don't I, know. Who's, I, that? I, who's, I, who's that for really? I don't know.
1: Well, I think all, all the, all the, all the successful developers have discovered that they don't need it. Yeah. And, um,
0: Sony you doesn't worry, even go, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, and then you, Nintendo you, usually just does the Nintendo Direct, which is streaming anyways, so...
1: Right. Yeah. You, you worry a little bit about how smaller games and smaller companies would be elevated, but at the moment, that seems to be happening. I know that, you know, Steam is a wasteland that has an insane amount of games on its um, release calendar at any given time, but... Um, but a lot of games are being foregrounded. So, so, so I'm not sure if that's, I'm, I'm not sure why that's happening. I'm glad it's happening. Mm-hmm. But that would have been my biggest concern about E3 dying. is like, well, it was, was that an avenue for smaller games to get in front of people. But as long as that, that problem is being addressed, I don't really care about E3. Mm-hmm. As long as nobody loses their job or anything like
0: that. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, who needs it? Yeah, I know. Oh well, yeah. I feel the same way. Uh, but yeah, that comes, like you said, with, coming from somebody who's never been, uh, to E3. So, you know, what do I know? Uh, well, so now, uh, we're going to wrap things up by talking a little bit about, uh, the games we've been playing recently. And, uh, as for myself, I've been playing, uh, pretty much just Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Uh, I finished up Mass Effect 1, uh, I'd say the last week or a couple weeks ago. I think I'd mentioned that on our most recent podcast or I was in the midst of it. Uh, And now I'm just about done with Mass Effect 2. I just got the... uh, uh, What is it? The uh, Reaper IFF. Uh, So I'm about to go through the Omega 4 relay. All of that good stuff. So getting to the very end of that. And I've really enjoyed it so far. It's been really great, I think, going back to those games, like I said last time, and kind of re-experiencing the story anew because there were so many elements of it that I'd forgotten. Um, Mm -hmm. And... You know, really surprising elements that I'd forgotten, like how much Reaper information there was in the first game. Um, And playing Mass Effect 2, I think out of the Legendary Edition games, I was most interested to go back to Mass Effect 1, Mass Effect 3, because I had only played Mass Effect 1 uh, one time. Uh, You know, maybe a couple years after it came out, I think I borrowed John's copy of the game and played through it and didn't go through much of the side content at all. Um, and then Mass Effect 2, uh, I played probably six times, uh, both on Xbox 360 and on PS3. Um, and then Mass Effect 3, I only played through one time. So, you know, for Mass Effect 1, Mass Effect 3, it's kind of like, oh, I totally forgot a lot of this. Mass Effect 2, it's kind of like, it's like rereading a novel for the 18th time, <laughs> you know. Uh, so most of the story beats I remember, I think a few things that popped up to me and John, I know you just started Mass Effect two on legendary edition. It surprised me so far with Mass Effect two, how much less involved the story was than I remembered. Uh, there's a pretty quick progression in Mass Effect two from collecting your group of allies to getting into their loyalty missions. And there's not a whole lot of setup for those loyalty missions. Um, Uh, But uh, even with a kind of narrative issue that I kind of have now that I'm older, uh, I think the game is still great. It's got great music. Uh, Combat's still fantastic. Uh, And Lens Flare. I mean, Mass Effect 2 is basically (laughs) the game that invented Lens Flare. There's a moment I took a picture of it uh, from uh, my PS5 um, where you go into the uh, collector ship, the derelict uh, collector ship, and there's just this bright lens flare at the end of the ship that just is like constantly in your face the whole side. And with this legendary remastered edition, it's like it's as bright as the sun. Like I felt like I needed sunglasses in order to play the game. So it just brought back a lot of memories. And uh, But I would say I, I've been most interested so far in replaying Mass Effect 1. And I'm more interested now in getting to Mass Effect 3 now that I've gone through Mass Effect 2 mm-hmm. for the seventh time. So... Uh, but John, what do you what do you make of Mass Effect so far? Um, i played a lot of 2 as well, but I, I'm blessed. Now I see it as a
1: blessing with a hilariously bad memory with this stuff. I guess that I, I pushed it out when I learned more about the 30 Years War that summer for class that I had to teach or something like that. There's only so much space in my brain, I think. Um, I'm excited for 3 because I never cared about the ending. I never found the Mass Effect 3 ending to be controversial. I didn't see an issue with that. That, that was a weird moment i think in video games culture history um I, I didn't like the game at all um and i think that a lot of that was probably driven by the fact that i liked two so much yeah and three just felt so bad by comparison and so i look forward to playing three whenever it happens um w- with a more open mind to three <laughs> uh and to kind of and to just kind of enjoy it for what it is um i think i remembered mass effect one better than you did um But I I will say I had forgotten how effectively that game does scale, like Mm -hmm. does space opera. Like um, the soundtrack is insanely good. Yeah. Um, Rex is still one of my favorite video game characters. Um, I was in the famous standoff with Rex and actually just shot him. Wow. Wait a minute. That's not what I wanted to happen. Yeah. So I, so I, so I reloaded. <laughs> Not a difference. I cheated completely. Doesn't surprise me. Ashley also... shot him. Yeah, and then my attempt. Yeah, I know. Uh, although you know, anyway, we've gone on it all night. But um, my um, my um, my attempts to be the space a hole fell apart because. You effectively have to destroy the narrative of the the narrative sense of the game to do it, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to. So, so my my shepherd is a bit of a jerk, but he ends up being in between the two paths. And so, what I'll say, so i just started to tonight, having finished one this afternoon. And um, if people haven't played Mass Effect and are curious or whatever, all I'll say is this: I was playing the last maybe hour of Mass Effect, going, "Oh my god, this is so good! I forgot how good this was." And then I started Mass Effect 2 and I'm like, I remember this is a good start. And then, oh, my God, the beginning of Mass Effect 2 is so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the, it's just so well done. Yeah, And it's just, they're just batting a thousand. Like, the, they yeah. ended Mass Effect in such a strong way. And they begin Mass Effect 2. It's like, and, and and to have the opportunity, which, of course, we didn't have back then for obvious reasons, to literally go from the end of one game to the beginning of the next. I like, know, as in, yeah. I, I, en- I yeah. ended the game had some dinner, and then started the second game. And I was like, this is crazy, because they ended the first game, like, the the first game just ramps up, and ramps up, and ramps up, and ramps up, and the first game ends at full speed, basically. And the second game starts, they just made everything faster. And it's so good. Oh, it's so... So I'm delighted. I, I, I was skeptical when they announced Legendary Edition. I bought it, thinking to myself, John, you have too much money, you're an idiot, you know, what are you doing? Um, you delighted. I'm delighted. It's exceptional. I am too. It's fantastic. I am too. My I, God, those games hold up so well.
0: They do, and I, you know, it's so great. I think too to, you know, to really take in that ending to Mass Effect One, and like you said, playing Mass Effect Two um, almost immediately after. I, I think I took a couple days break, but you really get a sense of the continuity there and how strong the writing is. And yes, you know, the last two hours of Mass Effect One. Are just phenomenal, like just oh. really good video game storytelling, and and then like you said, the first couple hours of Mass Effect Two are just like just as good uh, in a lot of ways, and so I don't know, it's just really remarkable, and you know, I would say Mass Effect Two is still my favorite game of all time. Uh, I would say I'm a little bit more disappointed about the narrative. Now I feel like there needs to be more connective tissue there, but it's still just like, it's still my favorite game. Like I'm just, I'm being nitpicky now, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like James Joyce scholars or something like that. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's great. It's been great to go back. Yeah, go ahead.
1: And, and, you know, it's not time just yet, you know, but um, I think in a, in a relatively near future, when you're starting to think about the history of the medium in the, in the creative space as opposed to the technical space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I suspect I'll feel the same way about 2 in terms of narrative, because in 2, they're trying to do something, they make a big shift in the gameplay, right? They make it much more immediate. They make the gunplay much better. And, and they're doing things with the mechanics of the game that then affect the narrative of the game. Mm-hmm. But I think we look back as well, the quality of the story, the quality of the characters, the, there had been very talented and very successful voice actors in games before this. But I, I think that a lot of fans became attached to Shepherd, particularly Jennifer Hale's Shepherd, in a way you hadn't quite seen as much of uh, before. I, I I don't know, like seeing seeing this legend tradition come out and be so successful. Um, I don't know, and again, I <laughs> I'm probably shamelessly biased because I'm such a fan of the games, but I feel like. Um, they're going to look back on these this trilogy, going. This was an important trilogy. Like I'm thinking to myself, I don't play as many story based games as I used to. I Maybe mean, part of the reason is it'd be hard to top some of these games that came out around this time, you know?
0: Yeah, particularly I the Mass Effect series. Yeah, and you just wonder could they even make games like this anymore? I just with the way that the industry is set up, I just don't know, you know. And I think the same thing about Dragon Age. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Dragon Age, yeah. which came out in between Mass Effect One. And Mass Effect Two is, in some ways, even better. Uh, certainly, in the Mass Effect One, and maybe better than Mass Effect Two in some people's eyes. Um, those people would be wrong, but you know, still, <laughs> I would hear the argument. Um, but you know, you just wonder. You know, it's been so long since we've seen a game like that, and you know, will we see it's like again? I don't know. I you know, maybe that takes too much money. Right. You know, it's not pushing the envelope for shareholders enough. I just. I well, know.
1: I, I, I think as well, you made a great point a moment ago when you, when you commented on the, just the quality of the writing mm-hmm. in mass effect is so good. And, and that's just, um that's hard to recreate. You know, I think that that's a difficult thing to do. Even talented writers don't produce top quality things every single time they write. And then I think you make a good point about where development is now, like different kinds of environments, you know, is that working the same way? Like, you know, The Witcher 3 in, um, in, in, in Schreier's book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, there's a whole chapter in Witcher 3. And one of the kind of uh, narrative goals they had was they would break these teams off into all these different quest lines, right? This is your quest line, like The Bloody Butcher, which is a very famous quest line, right, in Witcher 3. Your team is doing that quest line and and you mustn't if you come back to us and tell us the bloody butcher told you to go and kill 10 ghouls we will send you back you know and took this really kind of focused look at it and then cyberpunk 2077 they i don't know maybe they tried to do that but they did not do that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know and and those are the that's the same company right there's Mm -hmm. a lot of the same personnel it's just um it's hard Mm -hmm. it's hard yeah um I'm also, uh, before we go, I'm trying to re- recapture my youth to a certain extent in the sense that my my family's out of town for a few days. And so I thought, this is it. I can play video games all the time. But I forgot that I have a job and that the deck needs to be done and all these other things. Um, but actually, before they left, um, my son has gotten really into Stardew Valley. Mm and um my penchant for buying game controllers i don't necessarily need has uh, finally paid off because my wife and my two kids the four of us all played Stardew Valley together split screen oh. um that was awesome and i and and i would encourage uh Anyone in a if you're part of a group, whether it be a family or anything else, or whatever your family is, um, where you'd like to play together but haven't found the thing, consider a split screen Stardew Valley experience. Because my little four year old, she just sits down and she says, "Daddy, come sit down with me." And I go and sit down with her, and she couldn't be happier. And Ryan is off deforesting to his heart's content. He's seven, um, and uh, and uh, my wife and I are just enjoying hanging out with the
0: two of them. So that's been, I would recommend that to people if that's they're lovely. listening. That's yeah, lovely. Awesome. We should end the show on that note. That's that's, <laughs> a, that's the ultimate high. Um, so John, thanks for joining me on this episode. Thanks so much, Bob. Had a great time. So thank you listener uh, for tuning in to this episode of the history of respawn podcast. Uh, we'll be back with more episodes uh, in the coming weeks, including new episodes uh, of Civ 101 Uh, And if you enjoy our work at History Respond, uh, please check us out at patreon.com forward slash history respond where you can uh, sign up for our Patreon, support the show, uh, get news updates about upcoming episodes, get the opportunity to ask questions uh, of our guest historians, uh, and even get to interact with us in our Discord server, which uh, unfortunately has been very quiet (laughs) recently, mostly my fault. Uh, But we'll try to kick things back up again. Uh, here in the coming weeks, especially now that summer is in uh, full swing. Uh, But thank you again, and until next time, goodbye.